Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I'm Perry Marshall. I'm here with two very interesting guests today. I have Henry Hang, who is a cancer research specialist in Detroit at uh, Wayne State University. And I have Ray First. And Rafe is a very interesting character. He's actually a little bit like me. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's been involved in cancer fundraising and research for the last 15 years or so. And I've known both these guys for a while. And Henry and I and Frank Laukin and James Shapiro are the co-founders of the Cancer and Evolution Symposium, which has become a working group of the American Association of Cancer Research, which is the largest cancer research organization in the world. And uh, when we did the symposium a year ago, Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology uh, decided to put together a special issue on cancer. And Henry wrote an article for that issue, but Rafe, who speaks plain English, not just like science English, was asked, would you write a piece for this cancer issue and give your own perspective on Henry's work? So Henry wrote a book called Genome Chaos. It is a brilliant book. Came out uh, 2019. Is that correct, Henry? Yes, correct. And it integrates a unique view of evolution with a unique view of cancer to make a total synthesis that is really brilliant. And there are a lot of very interesting things in this book. And Rafe thought it would be appropriate to outline some of the major contributions that Henry has made. It's a very interesting view of evolution. We're going to get into this. And so I wanted to get the two of these guys together uh, like the mad scientist and the interpreter kind of like get them together. And also Rafe has an entrepreneur's view of the cancer industry and the medical profession, which is a little bit of a different view than a standard scientist has. And which, you know, in evolution 2.0, we feel that's very important. So we're going to talk about Henry's work and the scope of the work. Henry, I'm going to start by putting you on the spot, or maybe you, you guys could both chime in about this, but Henry, you started writing a book that got well underway about 10 years ago, and then it went splat because somebody didn't like it. And then later it got resurrected and redone and became Genome Chaos, which came out two years ago. Can you tell a little bit about the struggle to get different views of cancer and evolution into the literature. Sure, sure. Thanks, Perry. And uh, that is a constant struggle. So despite I have published close to 200 publications, but for most of the cancer research paper, some of them last four years without get published. So we have tried sometimes, you know, 20, 30 journals. And uh, this review process, I mean, the corresponding letter is, is much, much thinker than the paper themselves. Yes. So that's how striking they are. So the most, most of the time, extremely difficult. So in terms of this book, in fact, the Springer actually contacted me first. They said, oh, we heard about you have some new idea and we like it. And would you be able to write a book about this idea? So we agree upon, and after the review process, everything's fine, they signed the contract. But after I finished, they asked additional review. 
you usually do not. You just you already finish this. So the reviewer is particularly not interested about the, or I should say, not happy about uh, some of my writing about the evolutionary aspect. And I still remember the review said, uh, oh, he doesn't like the Mendel. He doesn't like Darwin that much. He doesn't like Rick Dawkins. Who else it, he's like? <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> so it's very harsh. So they asked me to you know, completely change the direction. I asked, what's the problem? Is uh, what I'm talking about uh, is always uh, uh, right in the style, the attitude? This is all of them. We don't like it. <laughs> So they actually call off that uh, the publication. They canceled it. They canceled it. So uh, cancel culture has been going on for a very long time. This is not a new thing. <laughs> this is not a new thing. <laughs> so so then we just put aside and then actually I wrote the cancer part and we published a book about cancer. And a few years later, you know, I said, okay, we maybe it's time to continue this. And then the, the Coincidentally, the, another editor also called me. Said, oh, "We want to, you know, ask you to do something. So, how about those? You know, so that's a story. You know, we." So, so I was very impressed with genome chaos because it made sense of a bunch of things that had never made sense before. So, like one version is you have this explanation about why sexual selection is necessary and how sexual reproduction actually stabilizes species. So that's just one example of something. So I don't know what order you guys would like to go in. Let me jump to Rafe for a second. Rafe, if you were gonna just like pick the first three things that you think are, like when you look at Henry's work, We'll definitely talk about this and this and this. What should we talk about Henry first? Yeah, I would say number one, the most striking thing is that contrary to popular opinion, contrary to scientific opinion, contrary to the title of the very, very famous work by Charles Darwin, uh, the origin of species, the origin of new species is not as it turns out, the gradual accumulation of small changes. And instead, and you know, of course, Henry is the best person to really dive into the specifics of this, but instead there is this uh, heretofore unknown evolutionary mechanism called genome chaos that Henry and his team has discovered over the last 40 years, I think, of research that is responsible for rapid punctuated equilibrium. And so it's not just as Darwin, so Darwin was, of course, right about natural selection plays an important role in evolution, but it's only half the story. There is this missing mechanism of genome chaos. So that's number one. And really, it's a lot less than half the story. Mm -hmm. It's like 10% of the story. And so what you're saying is Darwin really didn't deliver on the title of his book, The Origin of Species. He didn't actually explain where species came from, and Henry did, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, Darwin's work was unbelievable and world-changing, but you're right, he missed the mark on the origin of the species in particular, and Henry, I believe, nailed it. So let's talk to Henry about that. Henry, where do species actually come from? Sure. If I'm gonna go from a dog to a horse, or from, you know, how does this actually work? Yeah. So the, actually the, this is, I mean, understandably is a complicated story, yeah. <laughs> but I, I want to step back uh, just a, a little bit about the evolution uh, theory, because uh, Darwin's major contribution, and he himself also claimed is because he proposed the mechanism of natural selection is by the way of by accumulate the small change over a long period of time and gradually from species A become species B. So that is the most of the fundamental of the fundamental of evolution theory, right? So because of that, all this other theory, biological theory is 
built upon by such a situation. So we actually involve such a, a field is by kind of accident because we study the cancer you know, formation. So we actually trace the cancer from normal cell gradually become cancer cell in the culture condition and what's going to happen because we actually you know, supposed to observe the gradually accumulated gene mutation and the gradually, 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 boom, become cancer, right? So that's the, the idea, you know, we have uh, uh, in our mind at that time. But surprisingly, when I actually, you know, twist this whole process by twist the chromosome change, we surprisingly found it's not like Darwinian gradually accumulation, but rather drastically dramatically change the genome configuration, the structure, everything. And there is a low clonal expansion. We can detect it because that's a textbook everyone talking about. So when we found those, we actually bring ourselves, right? We said, hey, you did something totally not correct. You cannot explain by the evolution, stepwise accumulation. So we thought must be, we must have made a mistake in our experiment. So we repeat, repeat, and every time it's this, then we start thinking, wait a minute. You know, if the theoretically thinking doesn't make sense, and we know the experiment is real, we have to question the concept. So that's the, you know, the, the background. So therefore we actually dare to ask, maybe it's not stepwise. Maybe it's something else. So that's the uh, you know, background. So we actually get into this, this field. Well, so know, in term, yeah. There's only a thousand books from every kind of author and point of view that you can imagine that say, hey, wait a minute. Evolution by slow accumulation of random mutations doesn't really work. Like, I mean, you can go at least back to the 1940s, if not before, and find people saying that. And so... I'm in a kind of attempt to like use my illustration of what you're saying. So if you think of our DNA as a big hard drive, you know, like a, a regular hard drive is like a record player and, you know, there's a, a little thing that reads, you know, on the disc, but DNA packaged in chromosomes is like a big three-dimensional record player with all of these facets to it. Instead of having one needle that's going on a surface, it's going all over the outside of that thing and unpacking. It's like a chromosome is all this DNA twisted together. It's untwist. It's like flipping it out, untwisting it. And what you've discovered is that it's the reconfiguration of that giant three-dimensional hard drive that is making evolution possible. And you call this genome chaos. And this is way different than what people have normally been talking about in traditional Darwinian evolution. Is that? Sure. Yeah, right? that's a good explain. So for a long time, people always thinking biological information is within the gene. So if the you know, gene. But actually, we actually ignored the gene-protein relationship, just a kind of a parts information. You Almost like you make parts. But the biological system always put the parts together by different uh, unique architecture or configuration topological. So that's a new level of information because that information they make a different species because they all have a gene, they all have DNA, but because they have different way to put the information together, they actually form a new information. So that's a new term we use, we call it the karyotype coding. So, so the 3D shape of the hard drive is a super critical part of the information that the hard drive contains. So when you change the information, you change the shape of the hard drive and vice versa. And this is called karyotype. Is that? Yes. The karyotype is a way to summarize all the chromosome states, right? So the animal, every animal has their own karyotype. So even though mammals have, even though they have the similar gene, but they're always on the different parts of the chromosome. So as a metaphor, maybe a uh, uh, riff can tell the uh, one of the, like the building house metaphor. 
maybe you, you can you know, tell this. Yeah, I was going to jump in with that, but it's really, it's, it's, your, it's a great, brilliant analogy uh, that you have in your book. Uh, so the genes are like bricks. You can consider genes like bricks. And then based on different blueprints, architectural blueprints, you can use those sa very same bricks to make a house, to make a wall, to make a, a pathway, to make a, a dog shed. It's almost unlimited what you can do with the, the bricks. And we know that there's a limited number of genes. There's a big number, but a limited number. But there has to be some information above the level of the individual parts, the bricks, that account for the seemingly infinite variety of configurations, right, of organisms. I like that analogy. That's the, so the genome architecture, the karyotype, as, as Henry calls it, but the genome architecture, I think, is to me, sticks in my mind as the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. We know that. And it's really all that missing information that helps explain not only cancer progression, but the origin of new species and the origin of novel function. So Henry, and this is because of cancer research, like can you explain a little bit more how cancer taught you that the karyotype is really the driver of the speciation sure. cell? So for the cancer, for a long time, people always thinking cancer is weird and is out of control growth. But if you feel from a system point of view, what the cancer is, is actually emerge a new system within our body. So if you check the cancer, what's happening? Most of the cancer cells, they always have different chromosome composition, right? Even though they have a gene mutation profile, but the gene mutation could be totally different and it's very complicated. So we actually, after we did the experiment, we asked the question, why every time you have new cancer, you always have different chromosome karyotype, especially when you use a drug to try to kill this cancer cell, they have drastically motion and action just as reshafting the genome. So the question is, why the cancer wants to shaft the genome without cause the gene mutation? So the only idea is come from is the shafting the genome, you, you just reshafting the chromosome, is a way to create new information. So that is, uh, you know, is really get us because uh, for a long time, people always say, where is the biological information come from, right? People is rather puzzling. That's why the international design people always say, you know, current evolutionary people, they cannot tell us where the information come from. Mm -hmm. But we know the cancer under the stress, before you kill them, they just struggle to reshaft the genome to create the new information. So that is one of the very important parts we realized. Wait a minute, the chromosome is not just the carrier of gene. They actually can play organize this gene interaction as well as preserve such self-organization information, go to next stage. So that actually is one of the aha moments to thinking why this chromosome change is so important because that is the information carrier. So, so genes are at the level of ones and zeros in the hard drive. It, you know, it could be a few dozen or a few hundred, you know, but there's these pretty finite sections of code. And so you're dealing at a very granular level. And there's thousands and thousands of scientific papers that analyze the genes of cancer to death. And they talk about oncogenes, which are genes that drive cancer. And what you're saying you found was, wait a minute, if I zoom out, zoom out, and if I go from you know, a 10-foot view to a 10,000-foot view, I see that cancer cells are rearranging the karyotype massively. And this could actually be completely missed by somebody who's looking at individual genes. Sure. Right? Sure, like, they're completely missed. So in other words, the architecture of the operating system itself 
is completely rearranging and nobody notices because they're looking at individual bits and bytes. Yeah, and that's it. When they do the genetic analysis, they find out what those are, but they're not even thinking about the high levels. Exactly. So give just uh, you know uh, give you an example to support you what you're talking about. So for example, we have the building. After earthquake, the building clapped. But if you analyze that brick, still okay. But can you not see? You cannot say, oh, <laughs> nothing happened. You said, my God, the building is gone. What do you mean nothing happened? But if you see firewall fell over, but it's intact. Yes, but if you sequence that brick, everything is fine. So that is how ridiculous the field is, right? So that's why the, all this problem with using molecular marker to study speciation, all the same thing, because the gene is the same. It's just a different relationship, but okay. we use that to trick. And it. if you're locked into those assumptions, there is an endless, number of microscopic things that you could go study. And so it's really easy for somebody to say, hey, wait a minute, everybody. We haven't looked at this stuff over here. We need a few million more dollars. Let's go do that. I'm sure the answer is there, right? And then that doesn't work. And then two years later, well, now we're, we're off to another thing and it never stops. Like we're down in the weeds. We got a magnifying glass. We're looking at blades of grass. And we've completely missed the hill, yeah. the mountain. That's exactly. So we actually realized that they have unlimited triggering factor to cause the cancer. So we can study or we can get you know the unlimited pathway, but we just do not know which patient will get which pathway, right? So that's the thing. You you we can get all the knowledge we want. So that is a you know a. Another important thing is, as you just point out, they have so many gene pathway, everything. But above that is the system's behavior. So the evolution cannot see this gene change. They don't care. They only see that some strange behavior is different. So the select force is far away from gene. So that's the problem. But after you got the cancer cell formed, Oncogene will help them by through the microevolution to get more copy of the cell. But you need to have bad guy first, then you get more bad guy. So that's the story here. So when we say that gene mutation, everything basically is after cancer formation, they already formed the cancer, but they get more bad guy as a such. So that's why we propose the two-faced cancer evolution. So the first phase is macroevolution. You change the different system, system A, system B. And then in microevolution, you get a 100 system A, you get a 1,000 system A. So therefore, you become clinically visible. So that's the, you know, the, the, the Just idea. to tie, if I might, just to tie together the terminology. So microevolution, the small changes is what Darwin discovered and found out. And macroevolution, is this punctuated phase where there's a lot of, you know, the whole genome gets rearranged and that's the initiation, right, Henry? That's the initiation of a cancerous process. And then microevolution helps adapt the cancerous population to start taking over the cells. And this is when we start to see tumors. We can't necessarily see tumors until Macroevolution has happened. There's been massive changes at the genome level, the karyotype change. And then after some many generations, the cells that are actually an entirely new species, maybe Henry can go into that in, in a moment, but these changed species of cells through genome chaos, will then through Darwinian natural selection, microevolution become more adaptive and start taking over populations within the body. That's when we start to see tumors and then metastasis after that. So maybe you wanna- Yeah, so therefore they have a multiple circle. So just continue change, become dominant, change, become dominant. So therefore this is moving target. So you can find a pathway, you kill them, this all, and the treatment themselves induce genome chaos, they become new monster. 
and become more. And then you decide something to kill more, they become another monster. So this kind of play such a game, right? In such a way. So Henry, are you saying that the cell is intelligently executing these massive changes through some kind of an architecture? And this is not just some accidental thing that's happening. I try to say is this. So the chaos process, we actually, what we mean is uh, under the stress, the biological system sense the little survive. So then they actually operate the mechanistic for switch the genome. So that part, I think is determined by the cell themselves. But the problem is the cell has no power to predict what type of thing they are going to make. And they cannot predict how these products will match the future. So they produce so many different things, they just change the different thing. Then the selection cuts in to pick some combination which is fit the most at that moment. So we actually did the calculation. So when this drug resistance occur, they have every cell is different change, but the survival rate is about one in a billion. So that is extremely powerful selection force. So on the surface, we saw is, oh, this is very smart. This cell don't produce this. No, they actually produce the one billion of the stuff. But this stuff just cannot survive. Okay, so, but there's a very fine point to be made here is if these cells were just doing random stuff, it wouldn't be one in a billion. It would be one in a jillion, trillion, billion, quadrillion, okay? Like if it was purely by chance, it wouldn't be taking entire sections of a chromosome and moving them around. So it does have a low chance of survival, but there is some rhyme or reason as to what it's doing. And it's not just mutating individual little genes, right? There's a there's some larger thing going on. Right? Sure. So you keep referring it to it as a system. You go, well, yeah, you know, cancer is a disease, but it's a disease system. So what is your sense? There is some kind of uh, order to the chaos. Sure. Explain that. So we actually, this is, a, I mean, is also puzzling for us because, uh, so for example, after you put the stress, if the stress is no, the cell do not go to genome chaos phase. They just regular thing and repair everything, you know. The, but if you put the second crisis situation, then the cell become crazy, right? So they just continually doing all of this. So those one we, I mean, I agree the cell have certain condition in, in such a way, but whether or not it's actually on purpose design or produce the products, I think that if that, that's the case, the friction will be even higher in such a case. So the another reason is that because they have so many combinations that could survive, even though not the best, right? So because that's uh, we actually need to come back about the function of sexual reproduction to fix the, for the species specific, because we know sometimes the different species across the animal that could produce the generation which is genome unstable. So they cannot sustain, right? As a master species, but temporarily they can live. They can live no problem. So that means they have so many different combinations could fulfill the essential requirement to be alive. But that system just, there is no mechanism to pass such information. So that's another, you know, kind of more complicated story, but. Uh, yeah, I wanna address your, your point, Perry, that I think what you're saying is that the seemingly random or the random process of genome chaos. So, so as I understand it, when the system is under massive stress, it actually becomes adaptive for the organism to try a lot of different configurations. Let's shatter this genome and try a lot of different combinations in the hopes that, you know, one of them may survive and may reproduce and, you know, and your point is, well, 
a random configuration of DNA would be more than one in a billion. It would be, you know. It would be absurdly. Absurdly complex. But we have to remember, and Henry, you know, correct me if this is an overstatement. There is uh, a lot of information, a lot of adaptive information in each of the individual genes. So when we have genome chaos, we're not starting from scratch with the nucleotides. We have these very well-honed things called genes, which are like, in your analogy, they're like a subroutine. Yeah. So there is a good chance that if you, if, if you reconfigure all the subroutines in the program, that you will get some sort of viable function. It may not be the original one that you want. It may not be the best, but you're going to get something one in a billion times that is a viable program. Yeah, and that there's a modularity to all. Yes, that. that's a, oh, I'm just to say. So the module is very clear. So we we call it the symphony. You can see the different species, like a human mouse, they have about 250 times of reshafting. The, all the key module is preserved, like the Hox gene cluster. So if they the actually destroyed this fatal, they cannot survive. So they have some mechanism over there almost like the block, building block, always preserve, and then they switch the building block as such, yeah. yeah. I mean, that one is an interesting one because is it, the mouse, I think, 85% of the genome is, the genes yeah, genes are the same, same as humans. Yeah. And yet the genome architecture, the karyotype is, is, is very different. Yeah. The same story for the chimpanzee and the human, even more close, they have 48 chromosome and two chromosomes just a fusion become human 20, uh, 46 chromosome. So that's how striking they are. But that's something really bother us for a long time. So if you watch all the different animals, they all have different chromosome. But the evolutionary, mainstream evolutionary biologists said, oh, that's not important because we try to find a unique gene. But so far we don't have any gene is species unique, but people still believe gene determines species rather than the chromosome. So that's how striking the art in the field, you know, too. Right. And a chromosome is a collection of thousands of genes that are organized in a three-dimensional informational structure. It's not just a big, long strand of DNA, yeah. you know, like a hard drive, right? Sure. And so yeah. one of the points that you made in this, I thought this was just really brilliant. I'm going to give the, like the Homer Simpson version and then you help me fix it, okay? What I think I understood you saying was that evolutionary biologists have scratched their heads for a really long time. Why exactly do we have sexual reproduction when it's easier just to have not sexual reproduction? And what my understanding of your book was it said, when you have sexual reproduction, it locks a male and a female both into the same karyotype and if you mate with something with a different karyotype, it won't work. And what it does is it introduces a tremendous amount of stability to that species. So think, for example, of how cockroaches have been around for, I don't know, how many hundreds of millions of years, and they haven't really changed very much. It's like cockroaches have made the world the way that it is. And they are very successful the way they are. And they don't need to change. Just like, you know, there's certain things in business that don't really need to change. It's kind of like all automobiles just about, like they have the same engine, chassis, wheels, steering wheel, like very, that preserving that stable structure is actually incredibly valuable. I've got a friend at a major, major cell phone company and because I have an acoustics background, he's one of my old buddies from the acoustics world. And he's like the senior acoustical engineer of this entire company's cell phones, okay? So where do the microphones? He goes, the hardest part of my job is keeping the victories we scored last year because they have a new design and they have a new cell phone and they want to change everything. It's like, no, we got this right. Do not mess with these microphones, we'll have to start all over. The reason 
that we have sexual reproduction is it stabilizes species. And that is evolutionary useful. That is Perry's Homer Simpson interpretation. Can you guys clean that up and maybe, you know, turn it into a home run? Exactly. You, you get the point. So the quite interestingly, if you're thinking about the whole evolutionary concept, right? So the, you know, evolution, everyone's thinking is about the change because if you have to be changed, keep changing. But the problem is if you keep changing, what do you want to get it, right? So where is the place to stop? So actually the changing is for, in the, for the sake of being able to exist. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole point. People actually miss this point. That's why the people say that in the past 50 years, people gradually realized the most important thing for evolution, the constraint is also very important. If you know way to be constrained, you even cannot form the life. Now we actually study the information. We know that life, the key is the information, self-creation and the preservation. That's the key of the key. Everything is this. So if you don't have this capability to preserve this, you are not going to go very far. So that's why for the bacteria that don't have this sexual reproduction, after 3.5 billion years, there's still bacteria. There's nothing exciting going on. But when you have this eukaryotic system, have function of sexual reproduction, every time you have a very good system, you preserve this information by genome. So you have all that, you know. And then you only go to the better place because you only have more complexity and you jump to a, a next one and then fixed by six. You jump to the next one fixed by the six. So that's why, you know, after massive extinction, the world become more and more complicated. All of this is because about sexual reproduction, the constraint that can deliver this. So after, let me give you one point, like the, some people doing manipulation, like the uh, microwave, you know, induce the electricity, and then the, the eye can grow in on some other part of the body. We can do all this trick, but there's no biological meaning because we cannot preserve this into the genome. And even though it's fantastic, but it's biologically insignificant. So that's the thing, you know, we, right now the biologist is very, very confused in many, many aspects. It's because of that. Because the eye is on the leg, is not be selected by evolution. There is no mechanism where favor to preserve such information, right? So that's how important the function of sexual reproduction is because when this makes sense, adopted long-term strategy is there and they're coming in to rescue this plan to preserve it. So that's why when, you know, when Steve Jay go and the, the founder the fossil, you know, punctuated the change and the in the constant for a long time. All this constant, as Perry pointed out, is because sexual reproduction take care of them. They cannot get out of this. That's why the sponge, they have, you know, 18,000 gene. They don't have any tissue, but they have the neurogene, they have immunogene. They have all of this. They don't have tissue differentiation. So I just joking. They just put all the G in the warehouse. There's <laughs> no function. <laughs> they did not build up the stuff, right? So that's how it happened. So that's how it's important. Yeah, I think it's important to explain how the body cells, the somatic line and the germ line are different. So there's two types of division, cellular division, mitosis and meiosis. And one is for sexual reproduction and one is for development of the body, yeah? And so by keeping these separate, and you explain this in your book, by keeping these separate, it allows the body to be adaptive to various normal stresses, injuries, wounds, to be able to do differentiation, which is an adaptive process. And yet this, the germline that's used for sexual reproduction remains the same. So when the body's developing or repairing and there's mutations 
or if there's cancer or any other process, those genetic and genomic changes do not actually get passed onto the germline. The germline being the inheritance to the next generation. That's right. By the function of secular production. Right. So that actually is a very important point. So the, the uh, uh, Perry, because uh, now people always ask why we get cancer, right? Now we know they get cancer is because the evolutionary price to pay for cellular adaptation. Say so now we know the sexual reproduction keeps the genome do not change. So we always have fixed the genome, but the environment is constantly changing. So our somatic cell needed to be changed need to be changed. For example, the liver cell, I always give this example. After newborn, you have beautiful 46 chromosomes. But when the baby start to drink, start to eat, the chromosome cannot handle the stress. So they have to change. So at the age of the you know, 40, 50, 70% of the liver cell is no longer normal human chromosome. It's totally become polyploid. Oh. So that's a price to pay. So when the virus infection- so, so you're saying, when a baby starts drinking milk, its liver has to change, its liver cells have to change themselves yeah. in order to handle what's going on. And they, exactly. do it, they do it evolution in real time on the fly through their innate evolutionary toolbox, not through any pre-programmed thing because the milk in Africa might be different than the milk in China. I mean, is that kind of... No, it's, a, it's a, because of the, all the different environment, for example, your infection, you have inflammation, right? And then the cell have to change to handle that. So that's the same, like you, you, you know, every time you under stress, the somatic cell have to change to deliver this function. But after 40 or 50 years, you have so many alteration, everything. So you pay the price to be different. But without that, you cannot survive. So, so that's the life story that we have to accept this, you know. But the good news is that because you germinate still they are preserved very well, goes to the meiosis pairing, everything. And then your new generation will have new genome to go through all of this adaptation again. So that is a, you know, another important stuff because the somatic cell can have evolution adaptation Therefore, Darwinian microevolution in the species maybe is less that not that important. We still thinking about this issue further because you know you do not need a change because your somatic cell is different anyway. So that's why the human gene mutation for normal people is come and go, come and go. We, we all have so many gene mutations, but we have no problem. So that is the story about this. Yeah. So I see a pattern here. This reminds me of listening to Jordan Peterson's podcasts and presentations where he's talking about in mythology and literature, you have this battle between order and chaos, right? Like that's the Chinese yin and yang, that you always have this mediation between the structure and what works and what's always worked and then the introduction of the new, right? And we see this in politics and we see it in technology and we see it in literature, right? And I've been telling my business clients for years, business is biology and biology is business. They work in exactly the same. And in business, you have, well, you know, do we do the traditional accounting and the traditional company or, you know, do we create a new one and, you know, do we innovate and spin off all these startups or are we going to do the tried and the true and the, the you know, buy IBM, right? And see, you have all of this. And so what I'm seeing here is you started studying cancer, which is an aberration in the body's response to stress. These are cells, like the cells are trying to deal with stress. They're trying to deal with challenges in the environment and they go off the rails, and then they start evolving out of control. Henry studied this in detail. He said, wait a minute. Nobody's talking about how the whole 3D structure of the chromosome is being completely arranged. It's being arranged by the cell's ability to engineer itself, and then you find the borderline between order and chaos right inside the cancer cell, which tells you how species evolve, which Darwin was trying to figure out. Everybody says he figured out, which he didn't actually figure out. 
I mean, isn't that fascinating? Yes, yes. Actually, the so the because we actually found the the cancer model is very different from what we have learned for a long time, right? So then we actually thinking, can we use this information from cancer, right, to open our view to thinking about? So after that, you go read the history, you read the fossil record exactly like you know what we have thinking, but the people for long time previously that invisible for the true fact. They just cherry pick what is it they could support them. Yes. So now it turns out for the fossil, they have a direction selection that gradually you know, become bigger, become smaller. Only extremely minority of fossil have such a feature. So mm. the the most of them is very stochastic, you know, it's unpredictable, everything, right? So that's the thing. So we actually the cancer story just open our mind and open our eye. And then the next thing you say is totally different world as such, because uh, then we actually even go back to say, how come Darwin actually missed this point? And then we actually go back to digging and because his natural selection, the principle have the full consideration. The first one, you have to have change, that every individual have some change. But secondly, the assuming is overproduction. So majority of it will be dead, some not dead, must be have something unique advantage there. And then in the third one, he actually realized artificial selection, like a breed, dog, the pigeon, everything, must be true in the nature, right? Because the nature also could produce this. And then finally, he's thinking, give enough time, the accumulation of small change must be become new species. But many of his, uh, you know, Last two points, let's just assume there's no any data back them up. And then now we know there's no data to back up because <laughs> the, the artificial selection and the nature selection is extremely different. And artificial selection, you can push the extreme, you can constantly focus on this direction. But in nature, the selection always back and forth, back and forth. Yes. And for a long time, you have no place to go. You still stay there, yeah. Except when this environment dramatically change and have a crisis, and then you move to the next level, yeah. So Rafe, uh, you haven't said anything in a little while. Why don't you? We got just a couple minutes here. Why don't you tell us about the working group you're talking about? And and before that, like, why don't you chime in with, you know, what are you thinking about right now with in this conversation? Well, uh, first thing I'm thinking about is every time I get into a conversation with Henry and with you, so many questions and ideas and new ways of looking at biology and life and evolution and cancer come to me. So it's humbling and it's a good reminder to be asking questions and always question the assumptions. So that's what was really going on uh, when you're looking at my face. Yeah, I mean, I thought about chiming in uh, at various places. The other thing is the thing about Henry's work and his his theory that he expresses in the book Genome Chaos, it hangs together in an architecture, so to speak. So looking at one aspect like the sexual filter or looking at the genome chaos mechanism in isolation or concepts like fuzzy inheritance, which we haven't talked about, which is also an important part of the theory. There are key elements of the theory that individually, they don't make sense, or it's hard to justify. But when put together in an overall architecture, there's like this meta level thing going on. The architecture of the theory itself is very powerful. And it really represents a paradigm shift, a way of thinking about biology and evolution that is different than what we all grew up with and what you know, the scientific literature, you know, has congealed around as what's called the central dogma. Yes. So it really requires, you know, more like discussion, active discussion and questions and new ideas to come to an understanding and to move the science forward. So because of this, Henry and I, we discussed this yesterday but we're really interested in creating a working group, not only of, of scientists, 
but of, of people who are, are really just interested and have good ideas and good questions. Mm -hmm. uh, people who are practitioners, people who are doctors and oncologists, because Henry's theory really, and his work, uh, really shows that in many ways, we're going in the wrong direction in our treatment of cancer by adding uh, selective pressure, by creating a crisis for the system of cells in, in your body, we're actually risking, and this is through like broad-based chemotherapy where you're targeting cells for death, you're creating selective pressure. So one of the logical consequences and the empirical data backs this up, you're actually initiating genome chaos. Yes. You're forcing the cells' hands. Chemo is creating more chaos and forcing yeah. macroevolution, yeah. which is exactly what you do not want. Yeah. And so the standard of care, unfortunately, is the exact opposite of what uh, the theory and the empirical evidence suggests is the right way to cure patients, to help patients. Now, we don't know what the right way is. But at least, you know, if we can come together and earnestly talk about and, and debate new ideas, we maybe we could have a way forward. And so that's what the idea of the working group is. So we'd like to invite, you know, anybody who's watching, listening to join. And how do they do that? Yeah. So for now, email genomearchitecturetheory at gmail.com genome architecture theory at gmail.com. And you can put it in the show notes mm -hmm. as well. And we'll contact you about, you know, when our first Zoom meeting is. We anticipate maybe monthly Zoom meetings. Oh, that's fantastic. And I just want to reiterate, it's no accident that when James Shapiro and Frank Laukeen reached out to me and wanted to start the Cancer and Evolution Symposium, the other guy they pulled in was Henry. Uh, Henry's models are way ahead of our time. And I think time is gonna be very kind to Henry in terms of showing that his work is really good. So thank you both. Great meeting with you here today. And um, tell everybody the email again. GenomeArchitectureTheory at gmail.com. All right, very good gentlemen, thank you. Thank you Thanks, so much. Sir. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0.